Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. And I know Father Ambrose just said a prayer, but I'm going to say another one to invoke the, the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Spirit they may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. In the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The theme of this week is friendship, happiness, and the search for God. And we had planned to start with St. Augustine and Aristotle and then work our way to Aquinas this afternoon, but that plan had to change because the District of Columbia called me to jury service, uh, and so I am going to give this talk and then go down to the courthouse where I will hear day two of the trial, and hopefully we will decide... Uh, Hopefully the jury will reach a verdict this afternoon, and then I'll be back here tomorrow. So I apologize that I'm going to be missing for most of the day today. I should be back in time for dinner tonight. So, um, so that's why things are a little bit out of schedule today, um, and hopefully tomorrow we'll be back on schedule. If not, we do have a contingency plan, so if the, if the jury ends up being a bunch of you know disagreeing, unreasonable people, and we can't agree on a verdict, then... I may be gone a little longer. We'll see. Um, the theme for this talk, though, is an introduction to Thomas Aquinas on happiness. What is happiness? What is the best and happiest life that a human being can live? Or perhaps more pointedly, I would suggest that you might ask, what kind of life ought I to be aiming for? These are some of the most important questions that a person can ask, it seems to me, and they're also classic philosophical questions. But I would say they're not only for philosophers. Really, no one is exempt from asking them, and they touch every person's life, every person. And in a way, Aquinas thinks that the answer that you give to that question will shed light on, or maybe more properly, inform every action in your life. Since 
Every action, according to Aquinas, insofar as it's a properly human act, has an aim or a goal. Okay, so we'll be talking about that today. Now, as we go forward, um, we could just do this sort of as a lecture, the master standing here and you quietly taking notes, but I hope that it won't just fall into that format. This isn't a seminar-sized group, so it's not going to be possible for us to have a super informal seminar-style session. But I do hope that we will have some real back and forth as we go along. So think of this like a course you might be taking in your standard course of studies. So you don't have to wait until the end to ask questions. If I'm talking and you're not sure what I mean or you raises an interesting question for you, raise your hand, I'll call on you, and you know maybe we can have a little bit of discussion as we go. I've tried to leave time in my, in my lecture for that. Um, and if you're raising a point that we're going to address later, we'll just flag that and move on. So I encourage you to, to jump in. So there's a couple different ways that we could approach this material in Aquinas. And I think one way, which is tempting in a group like this, which is sort of interdisciplinary, and people, you know, some people with uh, a fair amount of familiarity with the material, and other people perhaps uh, less, we could do a kind of Aquinas on happiness light version. Uh, for those of you who are not uh, from the U.S. or native English speakers, this would designate like the salad dressing that doesn't have as many calories, you know? So it's not the full, full calorie intake. It's also probably not the full flavor. Um, so like you can have your sauce, you know, you can have a delicious, um, I don't know, French butter cream sauce or something. Uh, or you can have the imitation light that comes in a bottle. Uh, well, okay, I've decided we should go for the full version, not the light version. Um, so, what would the light version be of Aquinas on happiness? We'd really just talk about uh, human happiness, happiness uh, of the, that, that can maybe interface with contemporary psychology, things that would be an easy entry point for our contemporary culture. And there's a lot to be gained from that. I don't want to say that that wouldn't be a worthwhile thing for us to do, because I think that can be done, and it perhaps can be done very profitably. But if you, if you approach Aquinas' texts in this part of the Summa that we're going to be looking at, the beginning of the Prima Secundae, that way, you will miss some important things that he's saying, and you won't necessarily see how his account of human happiness is part of a much larger account. And that's what I would call like the, the full account, the robust account, that sees rational desires as a part of a larger picture of desire and things seeking their perfection. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. And question one, which is the focus that we have this morning, question one of the Prima Secundae, is really about this. So you could just read the parts of it that deal with human beings, but I don't want to skip over the parts that don't deal with human beings because actually that helps us see where we fit. It also helps us, I think, appreciate better 
the high supernatural goal that human beings have and how that's related to our natural desires. So these are things, you know, that, that like, on the one hand, understanding rational desires are part of a bigger picture of the desire of all things, you might say, helps us see how we fit in the realm of nature. And also we begin to understand how we have an orientation towards the supernatural, which transcends the natural and makes us a very unique kind of creature. So that's like very quick uh, kind of prefatory point that I wanted to make. Second prefatory point I wanted to make, and this is maybe to spoil the, you know, so spoiler alert. Um, if you haven't already read to the end of the questions we're going to be treating, we, I wanted to just say very briefly, like, where is Aquinas headed with these questions about, like, what is happiness? And what we're going to find out is that happiness, according to Aquinas, and he's really taking this from uh, a number of sources, and we could hear from Dr. Gorman, perhaps, about um, the Aristotelian background. Boethius is another major source for Aquinas in this part of the Summa. Um, Aquinas is going to talk about happiness as an operation or an activity. Now, there's different ways to talk about what is, what, in what does happiness consist. And we could say, ultimately, we're talking about God. But when we're talking about happiness of the human creature, he wants to say it's an activity. And if it's an activity, that means you need to be a certain sort of person to engage in that activity. You need to have the dispositions, the qualities, the virtues that will allow you to do that activity well. So that's going to be basically the picture that we're working towards. And that is rather different from what most people in, the, in our contemporary secular world will come up with when you ask, what's going to make you happy? So often people will answer that question by begin listing things that they want to have or even maybe places they'd like to go or things that they would like to do. But Aquinas, I think, wants us to think about the sort of person you need to become. And that's a rather different kind of thing. And as we'll see, it's less dependent on the contingencies that befall you in this life. Because if you become the right sort of person, bad things can happen to you, and it can still all work out. You can still be happy. And that's a really important strength of Aquinas' account. Okay, so this is all. I'm just giving you kind of a quick overview introduction before we jump into the text. Now, having the big picture on happiness requires us to set in place a few key ideas that may not seem directly to answer the question how to be happy, but I think they're very important about setting us off on the right path. So if we open up our text and we go to the prologue of the Prima Secundae, so this is the very beginning. Now, this is the beginning of the second part of the Summa. How many here have studied in some formal way Aquinas' Summa, like in a course, or would have gotten an introductory lecture about it at some point? Okay, about half of you, maybe two-thirds of you. So I won't, I won't go into too much detail. Each part of the Summa has a prologue 
which kind of gives you the orientation of what Aquinas is doing. And he's actually treating, he's trying to treat the whole of theology. That's what summa theologiae means, the summary of theology. Uh, he's, it, it, and he does think of it as a summary. In fact, in, if you really study Aquinas and you go into some of his other works, you discover that some of the discussions that he has uh, in the Summa Theologiae are very abbreviated compared to the depth that he goes into in other works. So it really is a kind of summary, even though you might say, wow, it's a pretty big summary. Um, but uh, nonetheless, he's trying to treat the whole. But in the second part, and this is the beginning of the second part, the second part is divided into two, which um, perhaps, you know, not using the best marketing, you know, 21st century marketing techniques, uh, Thomists have traditionally called the first part of the second part and the second part of the second part. Um, so it's like part 2A and part 2B, but traditionally it's spoken of as the prima secundae, the first of the second, and the secunda secundae, the second of the second, just by way of orientation. Well, we're, our work this week is in the prima secundae, the beginning of the second part and the beginning of the first part of the second part. Okay. Aquinas begins with this prologue in the Prima Secundae about speaking about man as made in the image of God. Let's just look at what he says there. Since, as Damascene says, that's St. John Damascene, transmitter of the Greek patristic tradition to Aquinas, man is said to be made in God's image insofar as the image implies an intelligent being endowed with free will and self-movement now that we have treated of the exemplar, that is God, and of those things which came forth from the power of God in accordance with his will, that was what he treated in the first part, it remains for us to treat of his image, that is, man. Inasmuch as he too is the principle of his actions, as having free will and control of his actions. Okay, so we are treating in the Summa Theologiae, first of all, God then things that come forth from God, the whole created universe, all the ranks of creatures. And now Aquinas is focusing in on man. Why? Well, we're trying to figure out how to live our human lives, I suppose. But specifically, he's understanding the human being as made in the image of God. So this is still theology. We are talking about the way we are images of God. So it's us in relation to God. How can a human being be like God or in the image of God? Well, if you know that God is a spiritual being, you know that it won't be by physical likeness, right? Someone might say, Oh, she is like her mother. She has her mother's nose, right? But no one would say that about your resemblance to God. Oh, that seems to be like the nose of the divine nature. Well, the divine nature doesn't have a nose. God doesn't have a body in his divinity. Now you could raise a question about Christ. Let's set that aside. Um, God has a human nose, not a, not a nose with respect to the divine nature. Okay, we're, we're not like God in bodily appearance. We're like God, first of all, by our spiritual capacities. We're able to know and love, and that is characteristic 
of a rational nature. God has a rational nature. Angels have rational natures. We have a rational nature. So we share in those activities with God. So Aquinas pinpoints what is highest in the human soul, intellect and will, that is, our powers of knowing and loving. Now, the image of God with respect to us not only means that, like God, we can engage in acts of knowing or acts of free choice, but also, he means, that we are the sort of creatures that can even, when elevated by God's grace, participate in God's own knowledge and love of himself. So in a way, that's what we're headed towards in talking about happiness. So the image becomes more complete as we actually do what God does to know himself and love himself. So Aquinas' key starting point then is how human beings act according to these two spiritual powers of knowing and loving. That's the most important aspect of human action. Now, this is not the kind of starting point that you find in, say, contemporary psychology uh, or contemporary scientific inquiry, typically. If they're going to study human action, they might study all kinds of other things, bodily things, you might, you might say, maybe brain states. Aquinas doesn't start with the bodily side of the human being. He thinks the most important thing is the spiritual dimension of the soul. So that's where he is focusing on. And so the prima secundae, which is about human action, doesn't have a lot to say about like brain states, but a lot about the acts of the soul, which is really where we see the human being as in the image of God. So his focus will be on our use of these two spiritual powers, intellect and will, able to engage in acts of knowledge and of free choice or of rational choosing, rational desiring, rational loving. These are powers by which we imitate God's own divine intellect and will, although in a vastly inferior way, but still an analogous way to God. Okay, so let's then look at question one. And we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning on question one, where Aquinas talks about man's last end. So he now has a little prologue to question one. He says, in this matter, we shall consider first the last end of human life, and second, those things by means of which man may advance towards this end or stray from the path. For the end is the rule of whatever is ordained to the end. Now, that's formulated in a kind of a scholastic way, but um, maybe you already understand what Aquinas means. The end is the rule, think ruler, you know, what measures it or guides it. Don't think of like a command. Think of like a ruler. The end is the ruler or the measure, the criterion against, we, against which we judge the activity that is ordered to the end. And that's just a very simple and, and straightforward kind of point. If you say, well, my goal is to get to the courthouse by 10.30 a.m. this morning, 
I could talk about different ways to get there, different means to the end. One would be to walk. Another might be to take the subway. Yet another might be to get Father John Mark to drive me quickly so that I can finish my lecture and still get there on time. Okay, so that end is better adapted to, or that, that means is better adapted to the end. And so we judge the means by the measure of the end. How well does it get you there? So the end, it turns out, is actually very important to think about when we're trying to assess human action. If we don't understand the end, we're going to misunderstand what the actions are all about. So let's look then at Article 1, whether it belongs to man to act for an end. Okay, so let's, let's break that down. Let's see if we can understand the kind of progression of reasoning that Aquinas has here. Okay, so he acknowledges that we engage in all kinds of different actions, right? And some of them, he says, are properly called human acts or human actions, while other actions are called actions of a man or of a human being. What is the difference, according to him here? What distinguishes actions that are human actions, properly so-called, and actions that are just actions of a human being? He gives a criterion here. He says, a man seems to act for an end when he acts deliberately, but man does many things without deliberation, sometimes not even thinking of what he's doing. For instance, when one moves one's foot or hand or scratches one, one's beard while intent on something else. Okay, so that's a common enough experience. You're thinking very hard about happiness, and you're, you're scratching your beard, and you say, why are you scratching your beard? And you say, oh, I, I don't know. There wasn't really a reason for that. Um, or you're nervous and you start tapping your foot or whatever, and you, you know, we don't necessarily deliberate about those actions. And Aquinas does have an account of that, where he will give us an explanation of why you don't have to be thinking about everything that you're doing for it to be an intentional act. Um, but he thinks that would be different from an act which is not done with will at all. Any other ideas about what might fall into that, those categories? Acts, you might say acts of a human being, not human acts. Digestion would be a good one. Breathing is another good one. So these are things that your body is just doing. And actually, you can't really affect them, at least not very easily, with your will. You know? You can try to stop breathing, but it won't work. Um, you will eventually lose consciousness and you'll start breathing again. And if you eat something, you can't will yourself to stop digesting it. At least a normal person can't. I don't know if there's some kind of, you know, highly developed technique. You, you watch these people who engage in extreme feats and they're able to, you know, like uh, strengthen their body against cold, you know. Um, but the normal person, at least in my experience, digests what he or she eats. Those are, those are acts that are coming. They're, they're definitely acts of a human being. But they're acts of a human being insofar as we are animals, really. Now, sometimes people find that shocking, but Aquinas thinks, like, yeah, you're an animal. Uh, you're a rational animal. So that's good. Try to be more rational and less, um, you know, just purely animal in your actions. 
That's what he's getting at. What's proper to your action as human is when it's a rational action. And a rational action means that it's engaging these spiritual faculties of intellect and will. So he says, those actions are properly called human, which proceed from a deliberate will. Okay, so now he wants to dig a little further into that. What does that mean? And that's what we get towards the end of the article. After he distinguishes actions of a man from properly human actions, he says, Now it is clear that whatever actions proceed from a power are caused by that power in accordance with the nature of its object. Okay, so what did we just say the power was that makes an action properly human? Reason and will, but he's actually zeroing in on not just reason here, but will. That's what he thinks is key. So it's that your will, which is your uh, intellectual appetite. By intellectual appetite, you might think like it's not your bodily appetite. You see food and you, your, your body is hungry for it. Now you can kind of hold yourself back, but your body's going to kind of want it. The intellectual appetite is when you, when you grasp with your mind that something is good and you will then want it. I mean, a, a good example of this would be someone who has received a cancer diagnosis and is offered a painful but life-saving cancer treatment will not have a bodily desire to like take the chemotherapy drugs which are going to make you feel really sick but of course, we do find people, when they discover that this medicine could actually save my life, they will, they will really fight to get that medicine. That's an intellectual desire. That's an intellectual appetite. Their mind recognizes that it's good. It's not a bodily appetite in the sense that they're, it, it may be revolting on a bodily level, but they really want it because they understand what good it will give to them. Okay, so our, our intellects, or our, the intellectual side of our nature, I should say, has an appetite which is rational. It's based on the mind's grasp of the goodness of a thing. Okay, so that's what Aquinas is talking about here. If actions that are properly human actions proceed from the will, that is from the rational appetite, then he says, well... That's because the, it's, proceeding, it's caused by that power in accordance with the nature of its object. Well, what's the object of the will? He answers it in the next sentence. The object of the will is the end and the good. That's what draws the will. When you grasp with your mind that something is a good, your mind will reach out for it, and that's the intellectual appetite that we're talking about with the will. Now, of course, there's lots of other things we need to add to this account about how we go about choosing between different goods and so forth. Let's just bracket all of that for now. What Aquinas wants to see is every time you engage in a rational act, so that is a human act, there has to be some good that you're acting towards which also has the character of an end or a goal. That's where you're headed. 
And that, as we'll see, that end can be proximate, it can be very close to you, or it can be further away. So you might have a bunch of things that you need to do to get to the end that's further away. It might even be the very last thing that you ever do, or the culminating thing, would be a better way to put it. And that would be the last end. Of course, that's what this whole question is about. If we were to look at the reply to the first objection, we'd see Aquinas adding a kind of further clarification here about the end. He says, although the end be last in the order of execution, meaning if you line up in a sequence the things that you do to carry out your plan, getting to the end is the last thing you get to. So the end is the last thing in the order of execution. Yet, he says, it is first in the order of the agent's intention. So that's not so hard to understand. If, you're, if you have a plan to get somewhere, getting somewhere is what's structuring all of the acts that lead you to actually getting there, if you're acting rationally. And he says, in this way, the end is a cause. Now, by cause there, he doesn't mean that the end is a cause at, in a material way or in an efficient way. If we had time, we could get into the four causes. He's talking about the end as moving you precisely as the goal to which you are tending or at which you're aiming. And in that sense, it's a final cause. Let me just add a, a, another um, little side observation here about um, goals and human activity. This is maybe just a reflection. We could go further with this if we wanted to, and there's been much more contemporary, um, you might say, sociological or scientific um, research on this point. Human beings tend to be unhappy when they feel purposeless. That's curious. We feel unhappy when we're not able to orient our lives towards some larger goal. And in fact, that seems to be very characteristic of human beings as distinct from animals. So this would be a confirmation of Aquinas' claim that the characteristic human activity is rational, even though we do lots of things like animals. We have lots of things in common with animals. Digestion and breathing would be one of them, but lots of other things too, desiring food, desiring reproduction, all of these things would be things that animals also do. But animals don't seem to experience despair or boredom. These are things that happen to us when we don't seem to have a goal or don't seem to be able to act towards a goal. We act in the most essentially human way when we act with a purpose by choice. Namely, when we think about what we should do, and intentionally choose to do it as part of a larger plan or aim. So that's already a very big step in the right direction for understanding how to live a human life of happiness. And a lot of our contemporaries don't really understand that. Uh, and how many college students you know, don't really have any clue about how to orient their lives towards an ultimate plan. You know, it's, and it can be a source of great anxiety, like I have no idea where my um, but knowing in some way where your life is headed or what it should be headed towards is a very great help 
and in fact, it what's makes what's what makes us essentially human. Acting in a completely chaotic way is a less human way of living. Okay, the next key idea that I I think we need to clarify is what we mean by good and end, since that's just shown up as the central subjects that we're talking about. And I want to say just a few words, and I don't want to go on too long here. Um, I'm going to have to restrain myself because I love this subject. Um, but I would call this the metaphysical foundation for speaking about the last end or the good and happiness. Okay, so we're going to do a little, a little brief detour into Thomistic metaphysics from the first part of the Summa. So it might seem that talking about the metaphysics of goodness or being, as we'll see, these are really the same. It might seem like this is a detour, uh, but it isn't. Because many modern theories about human action, about ethics or morals, err, they go wrong, precisely on this fundamental starting point. They posit that good expresses a value and is thus an evaluative or normative term distinct from the domain of facts of what is the case, right? So you would, on that account, have the domain of facts, what is the case? And then you'd have the domain of values, which tell us about our ethical actions, ethical dimension of our actions, or, or in some sense, what we ought to do. But that these are two different kinds of domains subject to different rules and different ways of knowing and so forth. Okay, if we were to start with that kind of presupposition, and frankly, most of us are marinating in that kind of worldview for most of our lives, so it can be very hard to transcend it. But if you're going to understand Aquinas, you really do have to find a way out of that mentality. So maybe right now you're thinking, uh-oh, not sure I'm, I can do that. And this week maybe is just the first bit of um, restorative therapy for your mind to begin thinking about the good in a different way. For me, just speaking autobiographically, working on this material, uh, which I did when I was just starting out in philosophy and then just starting out as a Dominican, like it was kind of mind-bending, but extremely powerful and healing. So it was, it like opened my mind to a whole new way of thinking about life which is actually the way that Aristotle and Augustine and Aquinas thought about life. So we're going to be talking about that, I think, probably in all, all three of the presenters uh, throughout the week. If you were to posit a, strong, a strong distinction between, say, facts and values, then you would need to seek some basis for why we give something this value. And that's exactly where you you know, you're going to run into, there's going to be lots of debate. Okay, so I'm not going to get into, like, trying to explain that view. I'm just going to say, to avoid making that mistake, it's important to start with the right ideas of being, perfection, and the good. So this is super brief. I'm just going to try to give you the key principles. Aquinas argues that it's a fundamental metaphysical truth that good is really the same as being, or what is. You find this in the beginning of the Prima Pars, Summa Theologiae 151. 
Prima Pars, Question 5, Article 1. I had a Dominican professor for the entire semester. We just talked about 151. He kept coming back to that. I will never forget 151. So remember that. 151, being and goodness are really the same. Convertible. So being and goodness are really the same. They're convertible. Okay, Aquinas arrives at this through a three-stage progression. From being to perfection and then to goodness. Okay, so if you were to go through the articles on God at the beginning of the Summa in the Prima Pars, you'd see that Aquinas first proves that God exists. God exists absolutely. He is to be. He is his very existence. Okay, we could, we could do a whole week just on that. It's beautiful, really interesting. We have to move on. Okay. Then Aquinas points out that this entails perfection. And if you begin to think about perfection, you begin to understand what Aquinas is getting at. God is subsisting existence itself. So he is fully actual. Think about that. He's fully actual. He cannot improve. He cannot change. Because there's nowhere for him to go. He cannot get better. Because he already has it all. He already has. He already is. The very plenitude of being and thus of every possible perfection. So this is an argument for what's called divine immutability, the fact that God cannot change. He can't change because he already has everything. And this leads Aquinas to recognize, third, that God is the infinite and perfect good. Okay, so to be good and to exist, thus are ways of speaking about what is really the same and they differ, Aquinas thinks, only in idea or in aspect. Like our minds think about them differently, but in truth, in reality, they are the same. And what's the logic of that? Goodness implies desirability. Desire is always of something perceived to be perfected or perfective. And perfection implies actuality. Something is perfect insofar as it is complete and therefore actual. So if we follow this chain of thinking, the good expresses the perfection or the complete actuality of something. And existence is what makes something actual. So to the extent that something is, it is good. And something is called good in the fullest sense when it reaches its ultimate or final actuality. When it's perfectly actual in all of its aspects. Okay, so that's the basic idea about God. And then we could add, all right, well, when we're talking about beings that aren't God, we would say, well, okay, perfections will differ depending on the kind of being that it is. So the perfection of a plant is one thing. The perfection of an animal is something different. Because the kind of being that it is, is susceptible of a different kind of 
full actuality. The perfection of a, of a human person is higher than the perfection of a rock or of a plant or of an animal because of these gradations in the natures or the kinds of being that we're talking about. So if we're going to answer the question, what is good, we also need to know what kind of being we're talking about. Because what goodness is will depend on the kind of thing we're talking about. Because we're talking about the perfection of the thing, according to its nature or its kind of being. Okay, so when we see the good as a perfection, we see it as an end. That is what we're seeking by our actions. So what Aquinas wants to analyze here, above all, in the Prima Secundae, is how human beings can direct themselves towards their perfection by their rational acts. So that's what we're talking about. Having an end, aiming at it by our choices, and that means understanding somehow what is our perfection. And that requires us to know something about what kind of beings are we. It's not obvious how to answer that question. And there have been competing answers to that question. And lots of people go wrong in trying to answer that question. And that's what we're going to discuss in my next talk, which hopefully will be tomorrow, assuming jury duty does not detain me any longer, um, where Aquinas actually goes through different candidates for this. Okay, but today we're just trying to clarify that we act for an end and what we mean by that. Okay, so with this in mind, we can just very quickly look at Article 2. I'm, we're not, we don't have time to talk about this, uh, and I wasn't planning on talking about it. Just to note, what is it, what is it telling us in Article 2? Aquinas's point is that not only rational beings act for an end, every being acts for an end. Now, that's a very controversial claim in some contemporary quarters. But Aquinas thinks that, I mean, this is where we go from, like, Aquinas light to Aquinas full version. This is the full version of Aquinas. He thinks that stones act for an end. Plants act for an end. Bees act for an end. Whales act for an end. Humans act for an end. So he thinks that we're not unique in that. What makes us unique, and what comes out in this article, is that we act for an end by directing ourselves. Other things act for an end by simply being ordered to something without intelligence. And, footnote, Aquinas thinks the only way you can explain that something is ordered to an end and, in, in fact, engages in highly structured, purposeful activity like bees, if they don't have minds capable of understanding what they're doing, some intelligence has to be behind that that somehow has provided for them their activity to act towards an end. Okay, that's, that gets us in a much bigger debate. We can talk about that in a soiree if you want, but we're going to have to move on. Uh, and we could talk about the different levels of appetite. This would be a good place to do that. Let me just name them for you here. Uh, just, you know, this is a very brief tour. Aquinas thinks that there are three kinds of appetites that we find uh, among creatures. There is a natural appetite. He thinks that stones have a natural appetite. They desire to be with other stones. That's what modern uh, physics calls gravity. 
they, they do this in a very reliable way. Then he thinks that there are sensitive appetites. These are irrational creatures with powers of sensation, animals, namely. They don't know the form of the good with their minds, but they do know particular goods by their senses. So they know like, hmm, this bowl of food is tasty. You know, that's what they know. The highest appetite is the rational appetite or will, which we've already talked a little bit about. So the intellect which grasps the goodness and therefore is able to order one's life towards it. Okay, Article 3. Aquinas' claim in this article is that human acts are specified by their ends. So this is a very interesting and potentially very important subject for action theory, and Aquinas expands on it in, in many other places. Let's just summarize it in this way. Our actions take on a moral character, or at least an important part of their moral character, from their end. There's much more that needs to be said here, classically, for Aquinas. There are three important aspects to a human, a human act. It's object its circumstances, and its end. And here he's really just talking about the end, so not to exclude those other two. But you need to have a good end for an action to be good. So if you help an old lady across the street, that looks like a good action. But perhaps you were doing it for the sake of swindling her out of her money, in which case it would not be a good action, because the end was bad. Okay, very simply. Um, but... Uh, let me bring in another important distinction, which comes up in the reply to the third objection in Article 3, and which will be important for us to understand what Aquinas is saying about last ends. And this is the distinction between ends that are ordered per se, or essentially ordered, and ends that are ordered per accidents, or accidentally ordered. Now, you may say, gosh, this is sounding very technical, and it is technical, but it's not that difficult. So a couple an uh, analogies will, or a couple examples will help us here. Um, okay, what is, an, what is a series of ends ordered per se, or essentially? We're talking about like a series of goals. Think of it that way. You have a series of goals. They can be related as intrinsically ordered to each other like the later ones, really depend on the earlier ones or not. So, in an essentially ordered series, there is an essential or intrinsic relationship between the proximate end, first thing that you do, and the ultimate end, where you're really headed. And usually this is a relationship of, like, real causal dependence. But with an, a series of ends ordered per accidents or accidentally, it just so happens in this case that these things fall as a series. But there's no intrinsic ordering of the things. Okay, so some, some examples. Aquinas' example is this. Fighting well is essentially ordered to victory. So you're not going to win unless you fight well. Fighting well is like the virtue you need to have in order to be victorious in battle. So you won't win unless you fight well, and part of victory is fighting well. It may not be everything that happens with victory, but it is a very important part 
of what happens that brings you to victory. Okay, what's an example of per accidens ends in a series? Stealing in order to give alms, like in order to make a charitable donation. You can steal money in order to give it to charity, but there's nothing about stealing that's ordered to giving to charity. Except that in this case, you've just happened to put the two together. You've made the one a means to the other, but there's no intrinsic relationship between that means and this end. But notice that with fighting well, there is an intrinsic relationship to victory. Um, another example that we might come up with, um, developing the ability to follow a logical argument, to sustain your attention over time while reading a dense text like Aquinas' Summa. Okay, this is essentially related to understanding Aquinas on happiness. It's an end, like to develop your power of concentration on a philosophical topic, like that's, that's a component of the higher activity or the further activity of grasping the truth that Aquinas is discussing. That would be a per se sequence of ends. You work on your powers of concentration so that you will understand this important subject. What would be a per accident series of ends? Like, gosh, my roommate is playing like loud music. I'm going to tell him to turn the music off. Okay, that is per accidents related to you understanding Aquinas. But it just so happens in this case that turning the music off is going to be important for that. Does that make sense? Does that distinction make sense to you all? So it turns out that this is a very important set of distinctions because when we talk about a last end, Aquinas doesn't want us to think just about a whole bunch of pair accidents causes that like add up to something. He wants to think of your life above all in terms of the essentially ordered acts that will lead you to your final flourishing. And that's why acquiring virtue turns out to be a very important dimension of moving towards your ultimate end. Because virtues are essentially required to become the kind of person who can engage in the activity in which happiness consists. That's going to be basically the argument. So I'm giving you a little preview of where he's going here. Okay, Article 4. Is there one last end of human t life? Um, the key point here, and we, I won't read the first paragraph of Aquinas' answer, but I would encourage you to, to read it yourself if you haven't done it already. The key point here is that the last end is the first in the order of intention. It's what moves your will above all. So you wouldn't desire to take the first step in, especially in, in a, a series of essentially ordered ends, unless you were already desiring the ultimate end, the final goal you're aiming at. So the proximate end, that's the one closest to you, the first one that you do, or the first one that you achieve, that's desirable because of the, the ultimate project that you've got in mind. So his point here is just that there is a last end of human life. 
And in fact, he thinks that there can only be one. The argument for that, um, I think I will, I will just elide over in the interest of time and look quickly at Article 5, whether one man can have several last ends. And here Aquinas takes up this question again of can there be more than one? And he brings back the notion of perfection. He says, the last end is what you desire as your perfect and crowning good. What will completely satisfy all your desires? Now, what could completely satisfy all of your desires so that you would have no desires remaining? Only something that makes you fully actual, right? Only something that gives you every perfection that your kind of being can have. You would have to have it all. Have nowhere more that you could go. No place further that you could go, as it were, in perfections, in order to have all of your desires satisfied. Aquinas thinks, therefore, there can only be one of those things. Or your last end can only be one. Because if it really is ultimate, it will satisfy everything. And it, it's just not possible to imagine two different things that would give you that complete satisfaction, given the, the kind of thing that you are. Uh, okay, I, I don't want to spend much more time on that. I want to get to Article 6. Here the question is, do you do everything that you do for the sake of the last end? And this is puzzling to many people. And here's where I wanted to bring up the question that Andrew just raised. In the 20th century, there was a much-debated philosophical question. Is there what we could call one dominant or all-encompassing end to human life? Aquinas is clearly arguing that there is. Or can happiness result from the attainment of a kind of basket of goods? Think of a shopping basket with a diversity of things in it. I need to have so much wealth. I need to have a certain amount of friendship. Yeah, let's add in some pleasure. Let's add in some honor and fame. Like, I want the right amount of that. Yeah, okay, that's enough. Thank you. Move on to the next aisle and select the next thing to put in the basket of goods. Is that what leads to happiness? So Aquinas in this article is presupposing that our life really only will attain perfection if we are working towards an all-encompassing aim, a final perfection. Now, that doesn't mean that it's the only good in your basket, in a sense. Although, ultimately, if you get that good, there's no need to have anything else in your basket. He, he thinks that, for example, if you're aiming towards God, which, you know, again, spoiler alert, Aquinas thinks that's where we need to be aiming. Um, if you're aiming towards God, it doesn't mean that you can't, say, desire to listen to music or to read a novel, or to have a nice dinner with your friends. It's just that when you pursue those other aims, they have to somehow be ordered towards, or at least compatible with, that all-encompassing aim. So having an ultimate aim for your life doesn't mean that you can't go shopping or listen to music. There's nothing wrong with pursuing a subordinate aim, 
as long as you don't make it an ultimate aim, and as long as it's not incompatible with your ultimate aim. So much more could be said about that, and we'll talk about that in coming classes, uh, especially next time. Uh, let me just conclude by looking at Article 7. Do all, actually, before we do that, let me point out um, the reply to the third objection in Article 6. You always have to be thinking about your ultimate aim. So Aquinas actually has a, a theory here about having a virtual intention. What does he mean by virtual? The virtual there does not mean what we mean by virtual reality, like fake. Virtus, in Latin, refers to power. Okay, so a, and a virtue is related to that sense of virtus, right? Okay, so a virtual intention means that the power of the intention is still working in you, even though you're not actually thinking about it right now. So if you're driving to work, and it's the route that you go every day, you can kind of forget what you're doing. You might be thinking about something completely different. You're thinking about the argument you had with your roommate last night as you're driving to work, and all the things you should have said. Um, but you end up arriving at your destination just fine. And Aquinas thinks that, in fact, during that whole time, you were virtually intending to go to, to work. And so it's right to talk about that as driving to work, even though you weren't thinking about it the whole time. A further distinction would be a habitual intention. So a virtual intention, like you get up, you get in the car, you start driving to work, like you have to actually sort of intend that at a certain point. Yeah, okay, I guess I got to go to work. You get in the car, you start driving. You don't have to keep thinking about going to work. You can think about all kinds of different things as you're continuing that act. A habitual intention would be like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm intending to be a good uh, employee and, you know, show up for work on time. That, that habitual intention might be present even when you're not driving to work. It could be present on the weekend. You're still habitually orienting yourself to uh, being, being good in your career, even though what you're doing now has no relation to that. You see the distinction? A virtual intention would be like you're, you're moving towards it. Habitual intention, you might not even be moving towards it at all right now, um, but it's still operative in you. So I think I should draw this session to a conclusion. Thank you for, in, for your attention and hand it over to Father Ambrose to give us instructions for the next step. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.